is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 There are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross and Dempsey's denied again. And Donovan has scored. Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA. Certainly through. Oh, it's incredible. You could not write a script like this. For the fourth time. Welcome back to another week's installment of FUVFC. To paraphrase the man, Will Shakespeare. Not to be or to not to be, but will it record or will it not record? I'm Keenan Troy, joined alongside John Tyos and Michael Hernandez. Hernandez. Michael, first time on mic for you. How are you doing, my man? We'll start with you. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm just happy to be here, and um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just hoping to have a good uh, first podcast. And then John in the Chelsea blue today in studio. Yeah, first of all, welcome, Michael, to the podcast. Great to have you here. Uh, yeah, I'm having a good day. Excited to talk about some soccer. Yeah, so for all of our listeners out there that are wondering where the, oh, where have our episodes been, well, you're not alone in that quest because we're asking ourselves the same question, but today mm-hmm. we have the wonderful Kayla Wenzel in a studio with us to make sure that you know it won't take more than three to figure out how to successfully record a podcast, but... Hopefully this one gets on the air and it cannot come at a bigger time as we are about two days and a couple hours out from the United States men's national team resuming their World Cup qualifying campaign, taking on, let's be honest, the biggest rival that this team knows, the hardest team this team will face, and that is going to be Mexico or El Tri or whatever else you want to call them. It's a home match for Greg Berhalter, and you know... After what was, I won't say a tough last time out for World Cup qualifying, but certainly not an easy one. You know, we remind ourselves of that home match against Costa Rica, the shocking result down in Panama. But we look at this upcoming international window where they place Mexico on Friday, and then next week they're in action against Jamaica. And I think probably, boys, before we start to break this down, I think the biggest question is, is will the number 10 return in the form of Christian Pulisic, who's been out for you know, a period of time with injury, got a s- appearance for Chelsea this past week against Burnley off the bench, saw him you know, face a little contact and come up struggling. So first, let's just start addressing Pulisic. Is, can we expect to see him in the starting 11 for Burhalter against Mexico on Friday? Is he going to have a role off the bench? Where do Where is he going to line up, and are we going to, if it's not Pulisic, who's going to fill that role in a big match? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, you already saw Thomas Tuchel, you know, reach out to Greg Berhalter and, you know, tell him to, tell him to keep, uh, take care of, uh, of Pulisic. And so, you know, this is USA's biggest match, and they're going to need their best player. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, you know, on that left-hand wing, you know, if they go with Paul Ariel or, or they're going with, um, or they're going with Aronson, and so um, you know, the effect that Christian Pulisic has on this team, you know, is immense, and you know, he could really take games over, um, as you saw in, in you know the in the Concacaf uh, Gold Cup, where uh, where he was where he scored the um, the winning penalty for them. So um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what goes on uh, in Greg Berhalter's mind. 
you know, um, whether he's taking into consideration at all, Chelsea. Um, but, you know, Michael, your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would say, first of all, I, I totally agree with the statement. Um, as you said, uh, Thomas Tuchel said, you know, try to take care of him uh, while on the break because he's just come back from a major injury. But at the same time, it, it's just like you said, you're going against your toughest rival um, in a home match, you know, and... And if you take a look at 2018, you know, they didn't qualify for the World Cup. So I don't think that in a match of this magnitude that they're not going to play their star player. Now, will he be on the bench or starting? I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I feel like, you know, he's going to be starting just because, you know, it is against Mexico. It is one of their biggest qualifying games. You know, they need to take all three points or at least a point to, you know, ensure that they qualify. <clears throat> And um, and I would say that, yeah, I would say that he's definitely going to be starting. And if for some reason he's not starting, maybe just to play it safe, um, he, he's going to be on the bench. But, yeah, I, I definitely think he if anything, he's going to play Mexico. And depending on how he does or how he feels, I think he'll just take a seat uh, in Jamaica just so that when uh, the Premier League comes back, he'll be good to go for Thomas Tuchel's side. Well, I think that raises the question for us, boys, is that if you're Greg Berhalter and you've got Thomas Tuchel saying to you seemingly like, hey— you know, our expectation of you is to, to is to take care of our player, you know, while he's away on international duty. If you're Greg Berhalter, and if I'm Greg Berhalter, I don't really care what Thomas Tuchel wants with Christian Pulisic because, you know, you're not employed by the United States Soccer Federation to make sure that your guys are fit to go and try and win a Premier League title. You're trying to make sure that the guys that you have and the guys that you have at your disposal if they're fit enough to play, they're going to play because your job is to qualify for Qatar in less than a year. And if Tuchel wants Pulisic to stay healthy, that's if I'm Burlhalter, I'm saying, listen, I've got him for 10 days. And I've got him for 10 days in camp and two games in that 10-day period. Whatever you want to do with him before our next international window in coming up in January, that's on you. If you want to rest him, if you want to you know, work him back to full fitness, that's fine. But... As we look at the group standings right now, Mexico is in first place in CONCACAF with 14 points. The United States is second with 11. And then you've got Canada in third with 10, Panama 8, Costa Rica 6, 5 for Jamaica, El Salvador, and Honduras. So I think it goes without saying because we know how hard Estadio Azteca is to play in, especially for this United States men's national team, and go in there and get a good result. I think it emphasizes how important this game is as you sit three points back from first place Mexico because assuming you can't get a good result at home, you think you're going to need some help along the way to get that top spot. Maybe that top spot means nothing. All you're looking for is for qualification. But I think right now is a good litmus test for Burlhalter because I've consistently said on this podcast that, you know, he gets a slap on the wrist and nothing ever happens of it because, you know, he loses to Panama, but then he gets a good result against Costa Rica, you know, draws to Jamaica. That's all done away with, with a home win versus El Salvador. So I think it's just, you know, indicative of the fact that every time Burhalter has slipped, he's been able to recover and not get too much national attention and too much press and too much questioning because he's able to, you know, get one of the two in each qualifying window. But I think with this game against Mexico, and you guys can tell me if you think I'm wrong, this is a must-win for Burhalter, not because he's chasing Mexico in the group, but also to solidify that, hey, this United States team, and, you know, depending on his 11, you're probably looking at what's going to be your World Cup side if you make it. And Mexico's the best team in this group. I think, you know, Canada is, is growing as a country. Jamaica's still 
playing, you know, a little bit what they were two years ago when they were still, you know, trying to qualify for a World Cup. I guess that'd be four years ago now. You know, Costa Rica is not the Costa Rica that had that incredible run back in 2014. And so it's Mexico that you really highlight on this schedule, not only because of personal reasons, but, you know, of professional reasons, that is, this is the best team we play in CONCACAF. And in order for us to, you know, fully be ready if we make it to a World Cup against top competition, we need to play top competition well when they come up on our schedule, regardless if it's only twice against Mexico. So for you boys, I think the biggest question is, what is Burhalter's strategy going into this Mexico game? Just because, you know, before that Costa Rica game, in which they won 2-1 at home, the United States had, had never scored a goal in the first half of of World Cup qualifying. And it was always the halftime adjustments that had, you know, given life into the U.S. side, you know, allowed them to equalize when they needed to equalize, allowed them to go on and win matches. And as well as that's good, well and good, you know, when you play a team like Jamaica or Costa Rica, when you play a team like Mexico, you can't rely on 45 minutes of, you know, them asleep at the wheel just as much as you are. And so your halftime adjustments can put you in a position to win. You need to be on them from the jump or otherwise they're going to make you pay. Yeah, and definitely as we saw, you know, even in the the Nations League final, Mexico scored in that first minute. So you're right there, Keenan. You know, you got to be right off the jump. USA has got to be ready. And I think the first thing with Greg Berhalter is, you know, the side selection. And we've seen it, you know, in the last round of qualifying that he liked to change things up. And he liked to switch things up with the lineup every time, you know, inputting different guys, changing seven, seven players or nine players every game. And, you know, that's just not going to do it for USA. USA needs to stay consistent. They need to have players who are playing in these important and crucial matches um, every single time. And so what I just think uh, is very important is to get those guys out there every single day. Um, you know, keep that midfield together um, of McKenney, Adams, and Musa. Um, keep getting uh, um, touches for Aronson up top because he can get dangerous. And... Um, and you know something that I, that I feel is a is a is a hot take, but I, I'll let you guys uh, decide that. Um, I think a, a lot of pressure is on Mexico too. You know, the last two times that they played, uh, USA has won, and you know now it's not it's not Mexico's division anymore. You know now USA is in the conversation, and I think that that puts a lot of pressure uh, on Mexico and their side and their manager, and Mexico wants to be on top too. So you know I think a lot of pressure going into this game for Mexico. But uh, what do you guys think? Uh, you basically took the words uh, right out of my mouth. You know, not only is this a huge game for the U.S., but also for Mexico, because just like you said, the past two times that they've gone against each other, the USA has won, and they've also won trophies in both of those matches. So this is a huge, huge test, because it's like you said, now the USA is becoming, you know, a very good soccer team. But also, uh, I want to go back on what Keenan said, as how this is a test for the UN's uh, for the men's national team. Because if you qualify to the World Cup, you're going to be going against the best teams in the world. And if you can't beat Mexico, you know, then no, no offense, but you're not going to have a, a chance against a Portugal, a Spain, you know, an Italy, a France, like with the with the quality that those teams have, and 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 if you're unable to if you're un, if you're unable to do anything against Mexico, then you know there's just no chance of you uh, getting past the group cha- group stages or even past the first uh, first rounds of the knockout stages. And I think part of that argument, Michael, is solid, but I think another part of that is you know. For the United States, I don't think they're worried about group stages, or they certainly shouldn't be after not qualifying for 2018. I think their focus needs to be get in and then see what we can do. 
And I think that's what this Mexico test really is about is can we win to move on top of the group and, you know, get some a sense of safety solely because, yes, they sit second right now and only trail Mexico by three. But if you, you cough up points here against Mexico, okay, then it slowly becomes a little more interesting because, you know, Canada gets a result, they leapfrog you. Mm-hmm. Panama gets a win, you know, securing all three points. They're suddenly right back in that equation as well. They'll be tied on 11 with the United States. So I think it's super interesting and it'll be a super, you know, important week for the U.S. men moving forward. I personally think that, you know, I've been so anti Greg Berhalter on this podcast. It's not even funny to rag on him some more before this match is played. But I think, you know, if you're Greg Berhalter right now, you've experimented with a ton of stuff in your past, you know, six months. If you want to go back to that, uh, CONCACAF Nations League final where you're playing a 3-4-3 and now you're playing a 4-3-3 which I think this team gels with more when you've got a a midfield that consists of Adams when it consists of McKinney and then you know you can slide whomever you like in that third spot it doesn't quite matter to me I think you know McKinney and Adams are your guys and then you know you can throw in a Kellen Acosta if you'd like but for me it's, it's more about this is the game in which I personally think we will see the most out of Greg Berhalter as a manager just because I don't want to say the other games in qualifying are a throwaway because you can't treat them like that. And, you know, the United States has clearly treated them as such, you know, with the crazy lineup variations and coughing up points to lesser teams. But this is the one in which he needs to win. And I think that's about as simple as we're going to say it. This is the one he needs to win. And hopefully it's the one he does win, you know, for all of us U.S. men's national team fans. It'll be interesting to see where we stand next week, you know, after their match against Mexico. And then, depending on when we get in the studio next week, if it's the same time next week, they will have already played Jamaica. So, it will be interesting, no doubt, to see what the United States does on Friday night and then again on Tuesday night. And hopefully they come away with six points. It'd be a shame to get anything less than anything less than five, I think, realistically, because regardless of that Mexico game, and Michael, you brought up a good point about, you know, Pulisic's involvement is, you know, if he's fit, will he go for all of Mexico and sit out Jamaica? I personally don't think so. I think you, between Aronson, Wea, and Pepe, I think one of those guys can start on the bench, and, you know, depending on how the game is going, Pulisic can make way, just because if you're Burhalter and you find yourself in a spot in which you don't think you're, you know, immediately challenging to go to goal late in the match. By late in the match, I mean second half, say 60th minute. I think you can do away with Pulisic and keep him for that Jamaica game just so that, hypothetically, if you don't get the result you need against Mexico, you can go in Jamaica with a with a healthier and more rested Kristen Pulisic who can give you a legitimate chance at three, shot, at three points. Excuse me. So, boys, before we transition out of the U.S. and cross our fingers and say our prayers and hope for, you know, the grace of God to help them defeat Mexico, give me some score predictions about what we think the U.S. is going to get up to Friday night. Me, personally, I think they're going to play to a 2-2 draw. I don't think that... Well, I think it depends a lot on, you know, how Greg Berhalter stacks it up. But if he stacks it up in the way in which he's done it recently, I don't think that defense is resilient enough to... Especially the defensive part of the midfield, I think Tyler Adams does a really good job. With the exception of him, I don't think they moved together well as a midfielding unit. I think with Mexico's loaded midfielder, with Cuadrado, 
and Herrera. I think that they're going to f- pick them apart and, you know, the quality Mexico has going forward. So I say they play to a 2-2 draw. And realistically, that's a win for Greg Berhalter and for the U.S. Obviously, you won all three, but, you know, a draw is not the worst-case scenario. You sit where you sat before the match. So I think 2-2. Michael, score prediction? I'm going to say that the U.S. is going to win 2-1. I'm going to be optimistic here, too. And, Michael, I like your score prediction there. I think USA is going to go down early. Mexico is going to score. But this USA team, they're a gritty team. They always like to come back, like to live for the moment. Uh, yeah, I think USA is going to come back, win it 2-1, Pulisic with a winning goal. See, this is what the podcast is missed when we talk men's soccer, especially the U.S. men's soccer, because typically in episodes past when we do the U.S. and recap the U.S., it's normally me and Dylan Balsamo, and you know, me and Dylan are both pessimists when it comes to this team solely because we invest so much of our mental, spiritual energy in it, and seemingly each time they're out there, it's tugged on at the very least, most times ripped out of our existence entirely so gonna be definitely interesting to see how it goes on friday i promised alex wolves when they played costa rica that if they lost i'd do a impromptu recording and send it this way i'm not making any guarantees on this because if it's a good match i don't think i'll need to but if burhalter disappoints me like only he can i might throw one out there if you know me myself and i can figure out how to record it because the past couple weeks as we know we haven't been able to but in those past couple weeks we've been away There has been some news in the Champions League in terms of certain teams qualifying already for the the knockouts, those teams being Bayern from Group E, it's going to be Ajax from Group C, and then Liverpool on top of Group B. And so of those teams, of those teams that are qualifying, and Juventus, excuse me, from Group H, snuck in last week, so of those teams that have qualified, I think, you know, obviously the one that I don't want to say no one expected, but, you know, Ajax coming from Group C that features a really good Bayern, uh, Borussia Dortmund team, excuse me, a Lisbon, a Sporting Lisbon and a Bestika side that, you know, you don't think that they're going to really contend for the knockout spots, but you think maybe they're going to be a force to be reckoned with and, you know, we'll give you some good games. Obviously, Lisbon's tied with Dortmund on six points, and then Bestikas hasn't shown up and is on zero points with a negative 10 goal differential. Ouch. But of Liverpool, and I think Michael and I are both Liverpool fans, so one of us is going to have to adopt a different personality. Um, but of Liverpool, Bayern, and Juventus, and Ajax, I don't want to say that obviously these guys are favorites because you've got a ton of quality that's not in already. You know, you've got that Group A of Man City and PSG, you also got Liverpool, uh, excuse me, Barcelona with a new with Xavi at the wheel that can you know turn it around in an incident and seems to do that with some of the press coming out of Barcelona, Inter Milan and Madrid, and Sheriff still somehow clinging to life in that group, and then United, Villarreal, and Atlanta are all in the mix in the other groups. But boys, of these ones that we've seen already reach qualification for the knockouts, are there any among those? that stand out and, you know, we can identify and say this is a team that we are comfortable saying can go all the way? Well, I'll jump in here and I'll take the Liverpool spot first from both of you. So so as we've seen this... As he wears a Chelsea jersey. Yeah, good point. Hey, you didn't say I could take Chelsea. So uh, anyway, just talking about and just looking at how Mo Salah's been playing in the Premier League and in the Champions League, the guy's just a goal machine. He cannot be stopped. And just watching him, you know, it, it, it stinks as a Chelsea fan, 
But as a soccer fan as a whole, you know, it's beautiful to see. He's scoring um, he's scoring uh, volleys. He's, he's scoring breakaways. He's scoring any way possible. He's scoring worldies. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. And, you know, that Liverpool side um, currently, um, you know, in the top four in the Premier League. But um, just looking at their roster, and it's just packed. And so that's that's my pick for an early prediction in the in the Champions League. But Michael, what about you? Um, I would say that uh, besides Liverpool, um, out of the teams that have qualified, I'd have to say Bayern is is always a threat. I mean, with with someone like Robert Lewandowski at, at the front, you know, there there's no stopping them. Uh, I mean, because they won it in 2019, you know, they won uh, the sextuple that year. So I mean. Um, I, I would say that Bayern would be one of the favorites. Um, and, and of course, there are other teams that haven't qualified yet that are also favorites. But um, since it, you know we're only talking about the four teams that have qualified, uh, I would say that out of those four, Bayern looked like they could go uh, all the way. You know, boys, I'm going to go with Ajax. Not that they're going to go all the way, because I think that's a stretch. Love the pick. Even for them. But to play devil's advocate, I think that you know, because they play in Eredivisie, which is the Dutch league, they oftentimes go unrecognized as being, you know, a nas- international superpower in the sense that, you know, you might revere Real Madrid as, or I mean, not going to put them on the level of Bayern Munich just because of, to Michael's point, how dominant Bayern's been recently. But for Ajax recently, es- I mean, especially, especially in Europe, you know, you can look at their domestic leagues, you know, matches and take what you want from those. But if you look at how they've played recently in Europe, you can start with Lisbon. First match week, five goals. Beat on Besticus, 2-0. Played Dortmund, four goals. Played Dortmund again, three goals. So it's not like this team is just squeaking by by any stretch of the imagination. They are some. There's something in within that locker room, and I think Ajax especially embodies this because we see at the top level players come and go. And, you know, Ajax from that team that shook up all of Europe when they beat knocked out Real Madrid in the 2018-19 season, they lost some key pieces from that. But from the guys that have stuck around, I'm looking at, like, the daily blends, okay? Those guys have an, a culture ingrained within them that seemingly is present within the locker room beyond measure because of the way they're able to get up for these big matches and, you know, you only play what's in front of you in terms of who's in your group, but when they need to play a top team such as Dortmund on the road in Dortmund, and we know how rocking that place can get, and put four past them, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit rude to just look past them solely because, you know, they're Ajax and they're not and they're not the Barcelona. Because if Barcelona was putting up these results, everyone would be like they're favored to win the Champions League again. But because they come from a relatively unknown league, feel like and you know I actually synonymous with like Cruyff and the names of Dutch legends past they're still looked at as like okay they're playing good but can they get it done but I, I think that's a ignorant approach and the question shouldn't be can they get it done it's they are getting it done and maybe the question is can this be sustained into the knockouts but right now I think I is playing some of the best soccer in Europe I think you know you look at Liverpool who's qualified and I already said that Michael and I are Liverpool fans and not to say that there's been holes in that team because, you know, they get the results that they need, but some of those wins haven't been as convincing, specifically against Atletico the first time out. And I think that, 
you know, right now as Ajax sits, I don't want to say that they're favorites to win anything just because, you know, how crazy it gets as soon as the knockout draws are pulled and you know, they might get unlucky and draw Liverpool. Obviously, they probably won it, but just hypothetically if they could. Or, you know, draw a top-level team, draw Chelsea if they can't pass Juventus within their own group. And so I like this Ajax team solely because it seems that the old heads in that locker room embrace a culture and bring it to your and bring it to you know the Champions League and so far it's been unbeatable so why not Ajax and why not now is the question. But in our absence, there has been so much news in a team that is also playing in Champions League. Playing might be a bit of a stretch based on how much you view this style of soccer as actual soccer versus kick the ball up to Cristiano Ronaldo and let him score late winners because that is what he loves to do. But it's Manchester United, and in particular, surrounding Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And so, from the last time we recorded, I think we gave predictions of United versus Liverpool, which ended up being 5-0 Liverpool, absolute thrashing, Pogba sent off. Fans leaving early, all that good stuff. Don't if forget the Salah hat trick. And Salah hat trick. And so all that good stuff happens. And then the next week, uh, you know, the whole week, it's is Ali going to stay? And then they play Spurs and they win 2 nothing. I don't know what got into that camp, but they decided they wanted to play competent soccer. And that forced Nuno out in Spurs and Ole saves his job. And they get a good w- draw to Atalanta in the Champions League. Ronaldo scoring yet another late, late, late goal for them. And then they go into this week against Manchester City, and the scoreline does not indicate whatsoever what that game was, at least in my opinion. I happened to wake up on Saturday morning and look for it and and watch it, excuse me, and it was just boys versus men, very, very blatantly to put it that way. Completely lost in the midfield in terms of possession. Anytime a United player got on the ball, it looked like they wanted it away. You know, De Gea plays incredible. He's really in form, which is obviously good news to Solskjaer, but it's terrible that he needs to play really well every game because your defense is completely porous. And, you know, the entire the entirety of the second half for United was just keep away at the hands of City in terms of, you know, got a couple sniffs here and there, but with the exception of, you know, a City air, there was never a time in which I saw United pressing or sitting in and winning possession and building. It was more, all right, we're going to somehow get the ball, and it's not going to come from an interception. It's going to come from either a throw-in, a free kick, or a goal kick. And somehow we're going to advance the ball to Bruno Fernandes, and we're going to ask him to make an insane pass. And I think, personally, that's asking too much of him, as great as he is. And so now we're in the international break. There's already controversy surrounding Solskjaer, excuse me, about, you know, he already took a flight home to Norway. He's taking some time off. And he's encouraging the guys that are not away on international duty to do the same. And it seems to be, I would say, a lethargic approach to managing when your team continually gets, you know, trounced upon by top-level sides. So I guess since we've got three weeks of Ali Gunnar Solskjaer news to cover, John and Michael, pick your pick your match and pick your poison of... I guess pick your flaw of Ole's managing side, or unless you think he's doing something right, which I think you'd be the first in all of the world of soccer to say so, but there must be a first for everything. So, John, I'll start with you. What is Solskjaer's, I guess, his fate at Manchester United? Because it doesn't look like they're going to do away with him yet. But what can he prove the rest of this season? Because I think writing might be on the wall if, you know, 
the manage, Manchester United front office listens to their fans and their supporters, he'll probably be gone. But what can he save throughout for the rest of the season? Is he going to be focused on the Champions League? Is he going to focus on cha- qualifying for the Champions League next year for the, whoever the new boss is? Maybe it's him if he does really well and turns the ship around. But what can Solskjaer look to gain from the second half of this season? Well, there's a lot to gain. There's not been much so far in this season. Um, you know, it's his team right now. It's a team that has very low energy, very low morale. Uh, the only real player I see with passion out there is Ronaldo. Um, still as, as old as he is, he still wants to win for his old club. And, you know, Ali's been on the hot seat for a long time now, and he's got bailed out with performance after performance. Um, you know, that, that Ronaldo, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, um, you know, that game winner in the last minute uh, bailout special. And, you know, every, it seems that every single time that it looks like he's going to get fired, uh, his team puts up a performance. You know, it happened against Tottenham, too, that forced, um, forced them to switch to Conte as their manager. But um, I think going forward, I, I, I think he's out after in this transfer break. And there's not really much that he could do now. Um, you see they're at the top of their group in Champions League. Um, that's, that's looking good for them. But other than that in the Premier League right now, I don't, I don't think that um, with the time that they have left and the quality of the other teams at the top, I don't think that they have uh, a real shot at uh, making the top four right now unless something drastically changes, unless he comes out and, and, and you know, there's been uh, something shakes up in the locker room and, and guys start to want to play for a new manager. And so, um, you know, I, I think his time's going to be done very soon. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the how the players react to that. But um, yeah, just Michael, your thoughts on, you know, what could happen after um, after this transfer window, and do you think that they're going to go out and uh, and get some new players? Uh, well, first of all, I'm going to say that I'm Ali in, just because I would love to go against that team every single week. You know, I would, you know, going against that team makes my day. Um, but as for what he's going to do in the winter transfer window. Um, to be honest, I don't know where to start. I mean, th- they need a lot of help. And, and I'm not going to lie. It's kind of sad to see a team like United fall down like this because, you know, just 10 years ago they were dominating the Premier League. You know, they, they won they won everything under uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, and now they're now they're down here. And, you know, most of it is due to Ali because – and this is a point that I want to make uh, clear. If you, t- if you take a look at the other coaches in the top four, you have Klopp, Tuchel, and Guardiola. Those managers came from successful teams. Pep managed that legendary Barcelona team back in 09. They won the sextuple. You know, he's won the Champions League several times. Klopp, he took Borussia Dortmund to the final in 2013, but lost to Bayern. But still, the fact that Klopp has won trophies before he showed up. Ali has coached at Molde and Cardiff. And then he's being asked to take over Manchester United. Like, that was, in my opinion, that was too early. Just because if you look at the quality of the managers, Tuchel... He's won the Champions League with Chelsea within half a year. He managed PSG. Like he, like those three coaches, know how to manage. And I, and uh, I'm not gonna. Lie, I don't like how I phrase that. But the point is, you cannot compare those coaches to Ali. Um, as for Ali being fired, I I don't think he will get fired just because, you know, he just signed the long term contract until 2025. I want to say, and he clearly has the support of the board because, if this was any other manager he would have been sacked. Like, for example, take um, the manager before, Ollie. He uh, That was Jose Mourinho. He got fired after losing to Liverpool. I believe the score was 3-2. to two. 
that was a close game. He still got the sack. And you're telling me that after Liverpool have demolished them 5-0, after City, you know, completely dominated the game in a 2-0 victory, and Ali and Ali's still in the job, I, I just don't think that they're going to fire him just because for some reason they have faith in him and um, they're just going to... Uh, I, I, I think he's going to stay until the end of the year. Uh, and as for where they're going to finish, I'm going to say they're going to finish in the top six just because I feel like somehow they're going to get points just because of how Ronaldo, just because how Ronaldo is, you know, somehow he will find a last minute winner. And, you know, when they're under pressure, that's when they perform well, ironically. So it's like somehow they're going to get the points and somehow they're going to finish in the top six. Um, and maybe as for the Champions League, they might drop down to the Europa League again because that would be pretty funny. And so, Michael, I want to go back to this point you made real quick before we wrap here is, you know, for some reason, Ollie's given, I don't want to say blind trust, but certainly the board at least turns a blind eye to his managerial style. And I don't want to, you know, jump to jump to assumptions that it's, you know, because he's a club legend. But for me, it's certainly something about that definitely allows him to continue messing up and continue getting embarrassed, embarrassing the club more or less with, you know, sloppy results. And, you know, when we look at the game against City, okay, it's 2-0, that's fine. It's, you know, City is significantly better than this United team is. But it's not a 2-0 that I think anyone in that locker room is proud of. You never really threatened. You had that one Ronaldo volley that forced Ederson into a save. Besides that, you had a couple chances with men running off sides and, you know, flag going up post-facto of whatever happens, which none of them resulted in a scoring opportunity. But I think that the real question is, is if his leash is so long, why is it so long? And I think that's only answered by understanding that he's a club legend and that they don't want to publicly slander somebody that was so good to them in his playing career. And then you brought up the point about um, Mourinho and you know how he was let go after that Liverpool game. And I think that perhaps much of the board's problems with Mourinho were off the pitch in terms of how he handled the media, in terms of how he handled directions from from the executives of the club and, you know, and how he didn't really embrace a Man United culture of, you know, discipline and excellence and all this stuff that, you know, maybe is not apparent with Ollie, but at least it's somehow ingrained it within Ollie's mind. So I guess my question is, is Ollie's absence of anything, I guess if we want to compare him to Mourinho, and I think Mourinho being the boss prior makes sense, but is Ollie's lack of, I'm going to say charisma, is it better for the board to have somebody like that in charge? And, you know, thinking hypothetically for the future, who do you want to lead this Man United club going into the into the late 2020s, as crazy as that sounds? Do you want somebody that's like Ole, who's more or less a puppet that, you know, will sign the players that you'll sign for the fees that you want and, you know, will pick the starting 11 according to what you want to pick? Or do you need somebody like Mourinho who's more of a cult of personality? I don't want to say a dictator in terms of a boss, but... You know, somebody who's going to play who he likes, who's going to play a system that he likes, and is going to try and get results no matter how he has to get them. And it doesn't matter what style of soccer he plays. It doesn't matter who he upsets as long as he gets the results. I'll take Mourinho every single day just because that is a manager who knows what, he's want, he, who knows what he wants. And, you know, he, he knows what's needed to win the title. He knows what's needed to win a trophy. Ali hasn't won a trophy with United. They've gotten close. I'll grant them that. But they haven't won anything. And, and and going back to, like, 
being the puppet. I feel like since he finished second last year, the board used that as an excuse to be like, oh, you know, they're improving. But if you take a look at that, Chelsea, they fired their manager halfway through. So, you know, that, that the, this was kind of a throwaway season. Liverpool had the defensive crisis with the, with all those injuries. They were never really a threat. Their only real rival in in the Premier League last season was Manchester City, who who eventually won the league because you had the other teams who were either going through injuries or you know huge uh, uh, managerial changes. Um, and going back to the point of, uh, I'm I'm sorry, I, I I lost my train of thought. Um, Going back to Mourinho, either picking Mourinho or Ali, Mourinho, just because he knows what he wants. Like, for example, go, uh, you asked who do I think will take charge in the future. I'd like to see Zidane just because I feel like he could be what they need. For example, if Ronaldo is still there, if Varane is still there, Zidane has has coached them. He knows what's needed to win t t trophies. You know, he won the three Champions League back to back, uh, which is something that hasn't been done before. And I feel like he could be just what they need. Uh, besides that, I would have said Conte, but obviously that's not possible right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I would love to see Zidane in the future if possible. And I think for Man United, you know, it's going to have to be somebody big just because they tried the Solskjaer experiment and regardless of affiliation with the club, he was a relatively unproven manager. And, you know, perhaps that's maybe what, you know, Spurs tried to do with their little Nuno experiment was that they tried to bring in a guy who was relatively successful with a small club. Not that Wolves is, you know tiny but it's certainly not a big six or you know another european power don't tell alex that yeah <laughs> kill you for that <laughs> sorry alex wolves if you're <laughs> listening in wherever you may be listening in but you know you take a guy who has relatively good success with a club that's not as big as the club that he's going to in terms of nuno moving to spurs and then it's just not the direction that the board wants to see because it's small small club soccer played on a big stage I don't think Ollie's tried to encapsulate that, but I think it's this lack of experience, excuse me, that's been derogatory to this club. So, you know, when if and when in the time it is to depart from Ollie, you know, you throw out the name of Zidane, and I think that he's option number one, just because of the pedigree. And you know, you sign him, and you assume everything's going to change. But I also think you know, added if they decide to wait this out and get to you know, the end of the season, I think they're going to see what's available. I don't know what managers might be sacked, who might become available, or if they're going to take a risk. Maybe, you know, they've got Carrick in their supporting staff, and maybe they'll give him the reins if they need an interim manager. But for right now, it's just going to be, you know, United needs to, I guess, ride out Ole until the international break. Uh, excuse me, the transfer window's over, or before the transfer window's over. Whatever they're going to do, it's certainly going to be interesting. Um, and then, you know... To wrap up with the United States, it's going to be interesting, too, when you consider that manager, too, because as good as his success has been, I think it's very reminiscent of Stolshar in the sense that he gets results when he, he needs to in terms of staying alive. But thus far for Burhalter, I think that the results he gets when he gets them hasn't been enough in terms of you know winning the big ones, which is why you're appointed boss. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Um, hopefully... I'm looking into the production room. I think we got it. I'm got two thumbs up from Kayla, a thumbs up from James, who's running the board, and you know James's first episode producing with us, so we always appreciate it. For Michael Hernandez, John Tyos, I'm Keenan Troy. We appreciate you guys tuning in. We're sorry if you missed us. We hope that we can use our great Fordham education to figure out how to successfully record a podcast. But until next week, take care, guys. We'll see you then.